Good morning, Redeemer Church. It's great to worship with you this morning and fellowship with you. If you're visiting with us, I would just like you to know that we have a meal uh, after every service, and you're invited to join us in the meal today, and hopefully we can fellowship with you and get to know you a little better. When we come to the sermon time every Sunday, if we're not careful, we can have a tendency to approach this sacred hour with a distracted mind, with a callous attitude and even a resistant heart. And it's not that we're being dead set on being calloused. It's not that we're being dead set on being resistant. It's not that we're dead set on being distracted. It's just that we don't fix our minds. We don't fix our hearts in a position and in a place to hear from God. The Sunday sermon is intended to declare the Word of God in order to reveal the glory of God, to put a spotlight on the Son of God, to call the people of God to a deeper joy, to a greater heart obedience, and to call the lost to believe in Jesus and be saved by His grace. And So right now, church, I want to encourage you in a few ways. As we get started with the message this morning, I want to encourage you, don't assume that you don't need to change. Don't assume that you don't need to change from the inside out. Don't assume that you're good to go. A, A posture of complacency is a very dangerous posture. Instead, assume that you need to change in some way. That your heart needs help this morning. Don't be a professional sermon listener right now. Where you're just looking for more knowledge, but not more obedience. Where where you're looking for some new and fresh insight that's neat, but it's not life-changing. And it's not life-transforming. This is what I want to encourage you today, right now. Be a humble servant of Jesus and resolve to follow Him wherever He leads you in this sermon. Yeah. So with that being said, let's turn to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Remember last week, if you were here last week, hopefully no one can forget it because we learned that there is a God in Israel. What we saw last week was really four scenes that unfolded. We saw an intimidating warrior. His name was Goliath of Gath. We then saw an unassuming shepherd who was David the Bethlehemite. We saw a conversation between two kings. A rejected king who is out for self-glory and a newly appointed anointed king secretly who is out for the glory of God. And then we saw a fight for glory between David the shepherd and Goliath of Gath, the great champion of the Philistines. And this is what we said. We said that David had spiritual eyes to see that this moment was a seminal moment in the kingdom of God and that he was not overwhelmed by the bigness of that moment, but rather he was confident, he was calm, he was clear-headed, and he went into that moment for the praise and honor of God's glory and also for the protection of God's people. And this is what we said. When we, when we kind of drilled down into that thing and we said, this is what it means for you and I, this is what we said. The war for God's glory is won on the turf of your what? Your heart. 
And then it's fought every single day on the battlefield of your what? Life. That's what we said. And it was true for David, and it's true for me and you. But it is very important that we also saw that David is a great model for confidence in God. David is a great picture for courage in the, for the glory of God. That he is a great example for standing for the glory of God. But we said David is not a great savior because David did not do something that resolved his biggest problem, Israel's biggest problem, and our biggest problem. And what was that? Sin. Who did we say is the greater David? Jesus Christ is the greater David. We need a greater David who will will essentially defeat the greater Goliath, which is sin, and Jesus does that for us. His, His substitutionary death for our sins, His powerful resurrection from the dead to defeat all of the darkness of sin and its consequences. And so He's our great champion. So let's look back now in chapter 18. Let's go back to the mountains of ancient Palestine And and let's look at what God is doing to build His kingdom. It is a flawed kingdom with flawed people at this point, but He is working His plan of redemption nonetheless. And so let's look down at verse 1, where they're still coming off the battlefield. King Saul is now having a conversation with David, the one who has just led Israel to victory and protected the honor of God and the people of God. And verse 1 says, As soon as... He finished speaking to Saul. That is David. Finished speaking to Saul. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. We have read before that Saul would attach himself to any valiant warrior. That's exactly what he's doing. And also, and also, Samuel had promised the people of Israel that if you go after a king, he's going to take your sons and he's going to claim them as his own. You remember that? That's exactly what Saul's doing right here. He's claiming Jesse's son as his own. No, you can't go do your father's responsibilities because you have to be under my leadership now. Continue, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. You may not, you may not get it when we first read it like that, but this is a powerful moment. This is a powerful narrative in the kingdom of God. And the first thing I want you to see is that this word soul, S-O-U-L, is used not once, not twice, but three times right here. What is your soul? Your soul is your entire being. It's it's everything that you are on the inside and on the outside. It's all that you are. We, We actually read Psalm 84, Phil, that talked about our soul longing for God. I had written down in my notes Psalm 42. Listen to Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my what? Soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What is the psalmist saying? 
Everything about me, everything on the inside, everything on the outside longs for God. And so here it's saying that Jonathan's soul, all that he is on the inside and all that he is on the outside is knit to the soul of David. It's knit. It's so united, so together that they are essentially one. They don't just have a kinship, they have a bond. They don't just have a friendship, they actually have something that is more than that. It is a singular passion. And so I ask the question, why was Jonathan's soul knit to David's? And I think you all probably know the answer as well. But it's because Jonathan's heart beat for the same thing that David's heart beat for. The glory of God the reputation of God, the protection of God's people, the spread of God's name. So what does Jonathan do? He establishes a covenant. Now I'm going to give you a technical definition of a covenant right now. I'm going to say a couple technical things about a covenant that are important. A covenant is a formal agreement between two parties that involve mutual obligations. A formal agreement between two parties that involve mutual obligations. The essence of a covenant is responsibility and action. If I enter into a covenant with Jamie, I have a responsibility toward her that I've got to take certain actions in that covenant. And the same is true for her toward me. And so if you've entered into a covenant with a person, you are bound to be faithful to carry out the vows of that covenant. And so this is what would happen in those days. The person who initiates the covenant would take an animal and would sever the animal in half and would separate the two parts of the animal And then the first person would walk between the two parts of the animal. The second person would walk between the two parts of the animal. And in doing so, they are both saying that if we are not faithful to the covenant that we have just established, let God do to us what we just did to this animal. That's serious business. And Jonathan enters into this covenant with David. It is initiated by Jonathan because Jonathan is the one who has the position and the power in the relationships. Why? Because he's the crown prince. He's the crown prince. He is assuming the throne, essentially, um, and what everyone would think, even though we know what spiritually is going on. And so what is the covenant that's here? Uh, This is what I think. I think it's a covenant of love. It's a covenant that Jonathan is saying, I'm going to love you, I'm going to pursue your highest good for the entirety of our lives. It's a covenant of loyalty. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I don't even care if my own father wants me to turn my back on you. I'm going to be loyal to you because I know our heart beats for the same exact thing, the glory of God. But listen, it's also a covenant of leadership. It's a covenant of love, a covenant of loyalty, but it's a covenant of leadership. And I say that because look at what Jonathan then does. He takes off his robe. And he doesn't take off his robe in order to give it to David because David's cold or because David's naked. No, he's giving this robe to David because it is a royal robe. And Jonathan is saying, I am surrendering my rights and my privileges as the crown prince, and I am giving it to you. 
and I'll give you my weapons as well. And if you can remember, the text told us some chapters ago that Jonathan and Saul were the only ones who had advanced weapons in Israel. And Jonathan is saying, I have something precious. I have something that nobody else has. And I love you, and I'm so loyal to you that I'm giving up of myself. I'm sacrificing what I have in order for you to succeed. Folks, I want to tell you, that's love. That's the kind of love that you and I should have for one another. And so... One of the things that we often may be confused is that David and Jonathan were probably the same age and that they probably looked the same and they had the same, they were kind of in that same generation and so they had a lot of that bond that was very similar. Listen, that's not true. Jonathan was about 25 years older than David was. They were in completely different directions and different positions. Jonathan is in the royal family and David is in a farmer's family. Jonathan is destined for the throne and David is destined for the pasture. And yet they have one thing in common. Their souls are knit together for the glory of God. So the word love is used many times in chapter 18 and it begins with Jonathan's love for David. And so I just had to make the observation that love happens when there is a common allegiance, a common affection, and an all-consuming passion for the same thing. that's, That's where real love happens, okay? And the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts is that common allegiance. The Lord of hosts is that common affection. The Lord of hosts is that common, all-consuming passion that they had. And so listen to me, church, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, absorb it into your heart. The truest and purest form of friendship is rooted in a mutual love for the glory of God and the joy of His people. The truest and purest form of friendship is rooted in a mutual love for the glory of of God and the joy of His people. We'll talk a little more about that in a few minutes. I want to ask you right now, how many people do you love as your own soul? As a matter of fact, why don't we do this? Why don't we just have an exercise right now? Why don't you close your eyes Why don't you ask this question? How many people do I love as my own soul? Name them right now, silently. Silently name the people that you love as your own soul. How is your love expressed to those people? What does your relationship with them look like? How would we be different if more of us loved each other as our own souls? All right, you can look up again. Actually, look down at the text, verse 5, before we move forward from David's friend. I just want us to observe that David went out and was what? Successful. 
He was successful wherever Saul sent him. He succeeds everywhere he goes and fights. Saul gives David authority over soldiers and all the people of Israel, including Saul's own servants, see David's courage, they see his skill, they see his success, and they rightly praise his advancement. Let's move now from David's friend, which was Jonathan, to David's foe, who is Saul. Let's read verses 6 through 16. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands? And to me they've ascribed thousands? What more can he have now but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had, what church? Success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great, what? Success. He stood in fearful awe of him. That is great fear or terror of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Look up at verse 6 and then also verse 7. Just read silently right now. What is the response of the people of God to the salvation, the deliverance that God had given? Just just read, what, what is the response? They do love Him. Singing, dancing, celebration. Listen, this is what I want us to observe right here. That celebration over salvation should be an instinctive response in the hearts of God's people. When it's not, when celebration is not an instinctive response that comes out of one's heart for the deliverance that God grants, you can guarantee one thing. There's a problem. There's either a heart problem or a pride problem or a theology problem or some combination of the above. But if we're not celebrating over the deliverance that God has granted to us, we have a problem. Listen, celebration, write this down. Celebration is inherent to being a human. Celebration is inherent to being a human. I look at all of our animals uh, at, at, at the Limbaugh place, and whenever our cat stripes, 
kills a, a mouse. I never see our other cat or our other dogs giving each other high fives over what she's accomplished. Whenever our dog Feisty chases off some predator, I would love for it to be a coyote, but whenever she chases off some perceived predator, I never see our cows and our donkeys giving one another chest bumps over that action. I never see other chickens go alongside a hen when she lays an egg and give a warm embrace to that hen. I never see a rooster who fertilized the egg that comes and ultimately hatches out as a chick just just celebrating over it and smoking a cigar over what's just happened. I never see that. Why? Because that's not what animals are made for. That's not why animals were made. That's what you and I are made for. We're made to celebrate. That's why when a home run is hit, I've seen a couple this year over at the Little League Park. Why does every single player spill out of the dugout and wait at home plate for the guy to cross home plate so that they can jump and celebrate? Because celebration is inherent to being a human. And you and I, are absolutely created and redeemed by God to celebrate Him consistently, to celebrate Him joyfully, and to do everything in our heart with our emotions and our hands and our instruments and everything that we can find to celebrate the glory of God. Now, when we go back though, we see that the celebration is wrongly perceived. Notice just, a, just, just the reality of the situation. The narrator says that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet their new hero, David. Is that what it says? No. It says that it can't come out to meet King Saul. Listen, the women are not intentionally trying to slight Saul. They're using a Hebrew poetic device that builds and bolsters from the first line to the second. That's what they're doing. Notice that they link Saul and David together in the victory. Notice that they speak of Saul before they ever speak of David. They don't deliberately contrast the two. They simply build on one another. There is absolutely nothing sinister here, but Saul gets worked up about it. And the reason Saul gets worked up about it, church, listen to me, is because Saul is not concerned with the glory of God. Saul is concerned with the glory of Saul. And what we see in this passage is the progression of Saul's jealousy of David. If you just look at it, you can see it as plain as I can see it. What do we see? We see jealousy turning into anger. Anger turning into paranoia. Paranoia turning into vengeance. Vengeance turning into physical aggression. Physical aggression turning into fear. Fear turning into distance and distance turning into trepidation. It is the progression of jealousy. Saul's fear is rooted in his realization that the Lord is with David and the Lord is not with Saul. I want to insert a gospel truth here. There is a greater David who fights a greater battle for you and me. He lays down his life for us 
and He succeeds for us, and we know that His name is Jesus. And He is worthy of songs of celebration. He is worthy of our musical instruments being played to Him. He is worthy to receive love and admiration. Because listen, David evades Saul's attempts to pin him to the wall. But Jesus does not evade men's attempts to nail Him to the cross. Jesus is the ultimate King because He does not evade. He substitutes Himself for me and you so that we can know true salvation and we can know true celebration of His glory. David's foe continues, but we'll call this next section David's wife. David's wife. Try to... Try to... uh, enter into this story as much as possible. There are a lot of parts to it. And so we just want to read it and make a few observations. So Saul says to David, here's my elder daughter, Mirab. Now, let me ask you, church, why is it that David, I'm sorry, that Saul is initiating a marriage between David and Mirab? Why is he doing that? Does that just come out of just, just thin air? Or is there some type of backstory to this? Yes, that was the promise that was made that whoever defeats this giant will get who? The king's daughter. Okay? So he says, here's my older daughter, Mirab. He presents Mirab to David. And he says, I'll give her to you for a wife. He promises Mirab to David. And then he says, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. In other words, he's he's petitioning now, David, that there's a little bit of a catch here. I still need you to go out and fight if you're going to take my daughter. Now, this is the deal. He, He plots. Look at his plot. In his mind, he's saying, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. I'm not going to kill him personally with my own hands, but I'll let the Philistines kill him. Notice what self-glory does. Self-glory becomes self-defeating. Here is the king of Israel wanting the Philistines to defeat his own people. Why? Because he's so out for self-glory and so jealous of this person who's stealing his own glory that he's willing to lose in order for his glory to be elevated. So David says to Saul, who, who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? He's, just, he's showing humility here. He's honoring Saul. But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. In other words, Saul just pulls the rug out from underneath David. Just whole new plan, doesn't say why or anything like that, but that's what happens. And so Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David. Just like everybody in Israel loves David. All right, Saul's servants love David, Jonathan loves David, Israel loves David, Judah loves David, everybody loves David because of who David is and what David does, and Michael is no different, his other daughter. And so they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, and so Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law, David. Saul commanded his servants, all right, speak to David in private, and this is what you say to him. Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. 
Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said this, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation? What's going on here? David already realizes he's got the the rug pulled out from from underneath him one time and there were still stipulations that David was bringing. And so it's very possible that David's saying, I don't have whatever that Saul wants me to have in order to give to him to to get his daughter as a wife. I don't have money. I'm a poor farmer. I, I I don't know what can be done. And so this was the deal that Saul says. This is the deal. The king desires no bride price, David. You don't have to pay 50 shekels. You don't have to pay 100 shekels or 500 shekels. All that I need is 100 foreskins of the Philistines. In other words, I need need 100 Philistines dead. And I need the proof of it. That he may be avenged of the king's enemies. And so Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines yet again. And so when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. You know... For the lesser of us, we would be really scared that we'd have to go fight and kill a hundred men. But David is so full of the Holy Spirit, and he is so full of, conf- of confidence in God's power, it's nothing to him. And so David arises and goes along with his men, and he kills not 100, but 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their skins to Saul given in full number. Can you imagine counting out the skins of those men such that it is a seminal moment saying, David is a victor. He is a warrior. He is a champion. And Saul is filled, of course, with fear. So Saul gives him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with him and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was even more afraid of David than he was before. So Saul was David's enemy. That word means to hate to hate with a vengeance. Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So that his name, his name was highly esteemed. I think one of the important principles that we see or just observations that we make is that David is a skillful warrior and Saul is a skillful liar. You know, people who are hungry for self-glory become master manipulators. They become skillful deceivers over time. They manipulate conversations for their own agenda. They manipulate situations for their own agenda. They manipulate people for their own agenda. And church, I want you to know that if you do not guard your heart with all vigilance, you will become a master manipulator. You will become a deceiver yourself. Why? Because if you don't guard your heart for the glory of God, you will live for the glory of yourself. And you're thinking to yourself, I'll never commit murder. I'll never be so physically vengeful toward other people. And I would say you might not commit murder. And you might not become so vengeous. But you will find subtle and skillful ways to achieve self-glory in relationships and situations and marriages and in all kinds of, of, of relationships because you, your heart hungers for your own glory and not God's. Can I get an Amen. When your heart beats for the glory of God and your confidence is in the power of God, it doesn't matter how many evil people or evil forces come up against you because you trust the Lord. All right. 
Melissa, if you would put up on the screen the big idea from this chapter. This is what we see. This is what we see in chapter 18. A singular passion for the glory of God and the joy of His people accomplishes three things. We see this in David's life. First, what does it accomplish? It produces love and loyalty. Now church, who does it produce the love and loyalty of? Exactly, Mark said it. Others who are seeking the same thing. Others who want the glory of God. Others who want their own joy and other people's joy. It produces an affection. It produces an allegiance. It produces a unity, a harmony, such that there is a relationship of great loyalty with one another because they see who you are, what you stand for, and what you're willing to sacrifice in order to pursue God's glory and your joy. We see David producing love and loyalty of certain numbers of people. But the second thing it does is it provokes jealousy and vengeance. I'm persuaded that there is way too much jealousy and way too much coveting in the church of Jesus Christ. And I believe the reason that there's too much jealousy and too much coveting is that there are too many people, both preachers and pastors and church members, who are more concerned about their own glory and they cloak it underneath the glory of God. And when they see other churches and other pastors and other ministries enjoy success, then they are jealous and in their hearts they are angry with God and angry with others because others are getting what they want and they're not getting it. It provokes jealousy and vengeance among people who are out for self-glory and not God's. And then the third thing that it does is that it promotes success and celebration. It cannot be an accident. It cannot be a coincidence that in this narrative, in all three sections, it says that David was what? Successful. He was successful. What does it mean to be successful? It means to accomplish your purpose. And so, when you have a singular passion for the glory of God and the joy of God's people, it will promote success for God and celebration of God. I look at my own life. I say, the more I am passionate for God's glory and the more I am passionate for your joy, then what I want is I want us all to succeed and I want us all to celebrate God. If I'm doing my job as a Christian, as a pastor, as a shepherd, then what I want among our people is great success and great celebration. Because that's what a singular passion for God does. Okay, so... I just need to ask a question. What time are we supposed to start communion, Phil? What's that? Okay, okay, good. All right, good deal. Thank you, Mark and Phil. All right, so this is, this is what I want to do. Um, I'm about to give you some principles and some applications, and they're not all just like really tightly related with one another. You're not going to see like the logic just flow 
perfectly down. These are principles and applications that flow from the text and from the reality of having a singular passion for the glory of God and the joy of His people. All right. So the first principle I want to give you, as I've already stated, is that the truest and purest form of friendship is rooted in a mutual love for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If we don't root our friendships, if we don't root our relationships in a singular pursuit, a unified pursuit of God's glory and each other's joy, then we're going to root it in something else, aren't we? And if we, root, if we root our relationships on maybe a mutual love for sports or a mutual love for politics or even a mutual love for one another, yeah. let me tell you what the inevitable result of that relationship will be. Idolatry. Because I'll start worshiping you and you'll start worshiping me or we'll start worshiping sports. We'll let God be on the periphery and this thing will be in the center. And what we'll do over time is we'll build years and then decades of our relationship on something that is not eternal and something that is not worthy of our celebration. And so we must build our friendships on the glory of God and each other's joy. And then let me just say this. If we don't do that, if we don't do it, then um, Josh, if you and I are in a relationship and we're in a friendship and my number one desire is not the glory of God and your joy and I see something in your life that does not glorify God, I'm not going to be very inclined to talk to you about it because that's not what our relationship is built on anyway. Our relationship is built on our mutual love for cars. And so if it doesn't disrupt that, then we can still carry on for decades in our, in our friendship. Okay? You understand that principle? So we need to understand the truest and purest form of friendship is rooted in God's glory and people's joy. Um, second principle. Courage is unmistakable, and so is cowardice. Courage is unmistakable. And so is cowardice. Everybody observed David's courage. They saw it. It was unmistakable. Not only did he go out and face the giant, and that he had a purpose. That was that everybody would know that there's a God in Israel, and that all the earth would know that the Lord of hosts reigns. And not only did he have a plan, and then not only did he face this giant with great amount of confidence and courage, and not only did he slay him and was he victorious, but listen to this, his courage was most demonstrated before the people of Israel that he went out and came in consistently before the people. They saw it. He went out and fought, and he came in. He went out and fought, and he came in. He went out and fought, and he came in. And there is a word in the Hebrew that's used a bunch of times in this text that doesn't show forth in the English, and it's the word face. 
It's the worst face. We're seeing that, that little preposition before them, before them, before them, that is in their face. And what the Lord is trying to teach us there is that His courage was displayed with them in the form of relationship. They saw Him. They knew Him. They experienced Him. And they were able to enter into His courage. It was unmistakable because they knew who David was. And men, courage does not require you to slay a giant or to kill 200 men. Courage is going to work every day. Courage is taking your family to church every Sunday. Courage is spending quality time with the people who need you the most and love you the most. Courage is going out and coming in every day of your life for the glory of God. That's what courage is. And ladies, I want to tell you, courage is finding your worth in God's love for you. Courage is not allowing the culture to define what's right and best for you. Courage is trusting God when your husband acts like a bum and your kids act like gremlins. Courage is refusing to lash out in vengeance, but requiring yourself to cry out in desperation to the Lord of glory. That's courage. And you do that consistently before the Lord of hosts. I'll just repeat what I said earlier too. This is another principle. Celebration in response to salvation should be instinctive in the hearts of God's people. Celebration in response to salvation should be instinctive in the hearts of God's people. When we think about it in terms of the cross, Jesus Christ goes to the cross and He stares down the darkness of our sin. He stares down the depravity of our lives. He stares down the self-glory-seeking nature of our hearts and He crushes it on the cross. He says, I'm killing it right here. I'm paying the penalty for it. And He goes to the grave And He rises from the dead. And in doing so, we get deliverance from our darkness, from our depravity, from our self-glory seeking, so that we now can be pure worshipers of Jesus. That's something that's worthy to celebrate. To say, Amen. Glory to Christ. Praise His name. Let us sing and play musical instruments and dance at what our King has done for us. Here's another principle. A passion for self-glory is a very dangerous thing. It will consume you, change you, control you, and doom you. That's Saul. It is very present and evident before us, but it also can be you and I if we do not guard our hearts. And as I read this passage over and over again, this is another principle. I'll tell you the principle explicitly in just a moment. But as I read this passage over and over this week, I did have this thought that most women at Redeemer Church who read 1 Samuel chapter 18 are going to see something that most men are not going to see. And that's how Saul treated his daughters. Saul used his daughters as pawns to advance 
His own glory. I would just say, dads, how dare you treat your daughters in any other way than to promote the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom in their hearts and in their lives. And I'd also just say this. I know this sounds a little odd, but Saul's actions, uh, they don't honor his daughters. And I want to say this. um, The Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh but it never prescribes exactly how that's done. There's great freedom in how a man is joined to a woman. And it should involve the family, it should involve the church, it should involve Christian friends, it should involve counselors. But there's no prescription on exactly how it's done, and we should never do things that promote um, bad things in relationships. We should honor the authority of Scripture and not go any further. I got a question for you by way of principle. What provoked Jonathan, Israel's, Michael's, Saul's servant's love for David? It's his commitment to the glory of God, his courage for the people of God, and his consistency day in and day out. And I just want to call you to that today, church. I want to call you to commitment to the glory of God more than anything else. I want to call you to a courage in the face of danger and in the face of sin. And I want to call you to consistency. I want to call you to consistency. We live in an age where consistency is undervalued. We live in an age where consistency is something that we treat as as, uh, optional. If you look at, say, the instructions in Ephesians, we're studying Ephesians on Wednesday nights. If you look at the instructions in Ephesians about walking in love, in walking in holiness, in walking in obedience, in walking in faithfulness, those are present active verbs. In other words, you are continually to be walking. You're continually to be being faithful. You're continuing to to care for the needs of others. You're continuing to use your gifts. You're continuing to show up. You're continuing, you're continuing, you're continuing because that's what God's people do because they are formed in God's image and they are connected to God's Son who never stops loving you, who never stops mediating for you, who never stops caring for you, and who never stops forgiving you. And so you take after His Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and consistently... Be courageous for the glory of God. And here's one. And I think this just uh, protrudes from the text. God cares about relationships. God cares. He cares about friendships. He cares about covenants. He cares about success. He cares about leadership. He cares about people. God cares, and He preserves chapter 18 to show us that relationships are beautiful, that covenants are real and right and important. He, he, he preserves this to show us that jealousies and, and, and anger and all of these things are very dangerous, and we must prevent them as well as we can in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're in the, the home stretch here. I want to just I want to give you a couple of instructions. If you're asking the question, where 
in the sermon is he going to tell us what to do? It would be right now. All right? All right, so first of all, be sacrificial and generous with your friends. Be sacrificial and generous with your friends. And I don't just say that because that's exactly what Jonathan was toward David. I, that, that's where the principle comes from. Listen, Jonathan took off his robe and surrendered his weapons to David. But Jesus Christ, your greatest friend, had all of his clothes stripped off of him and was hung up on a cross to show you how much he loves you and how much he was willing to sacrifice on your behalf. Why don't you demonstrate the same kind of sacrifice for the people in your life whom you love and whom your soul is knitted to? The second instruction I want to give to you is celebrate your salvation. Celebrate your salvation. And now you can fill in the blanks what that looks like. But surely it's sing to the Lord, play music to the Lord. Join with other worshipers as often as possible to sing to one another. Do what God created and redeemed you to do. Then the final instruction is root out jealousy as soon as you detect it in your heart. Root out jealousy as soon as you detect it in your heart. There's no way you're going to be able to write these things I'm about to just spit out. So you can get the notes, just email me today and I'll send them to you. But listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to ask, who am I jealous of? Why am I jealous? What am I wanting that I'm not getting? Am I dissatisfied with God's provision for me at this moment? And if so, what am I saying about the character of God with my attitude? What am I saying about the goodness of God? What am I saying about the wisdom of God? What I'm actually saying is that God's not good, that God is not sovereign, that God doesn't know. Confess your jealousy. Ask for forgiveness. Confess God's goodness. Remember the cross of Jesus. Ask for contentment. And celebrate all the victories of God's people because their victories are also your victories. What if Saul came back into town and all the women are surrounded and they're playing musical instruments and they're singing and they're dancing and everybody's excited and they're saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Just think if King Saul came into town and he's got David right beside him and he thrusts up David's arm like this and says, we've got victory. We've got celebration. The, Lord has been, has, the Lord's glory has been saved. The people have been defended. And we need to thank this guy right here. Would there have been anything wrong with that? No. That's celebrating in David's victory because David's victory is also my victory. Right. And it's ultimately God's victory. So celebrate all the victory of God's people because they belong to you too. I'll give you one little subtort. Pray for God's glory to be magnified in your life through your circumstances because they are ordained by God for you to experience for His praise and your good.